When you have a RICO prosecution, racketeer influence corrupt organization, you can bring in every criminal act that the organization has done wherever they've done it. We knew we were bringing him in. He did not know what was happening at that time, but we knew that he had done that shooting in his attempt to shoot up the gang's restaurant. Truth is what this case is gonna be based on, and he has to realize that he's been basically had. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we are right in the middle of a nail-biter case from the case files of one Bobby Chacon. Thanks for having me back. It is certainly, it was the biggest case of my early career, and it formed a lot of who I am, who I went forward as an agent for the rest of my career learning from this case. So let's dive back in. Last week, you were telling us about the sort of complex team that you had built and the different decisions that had to be made in this sort of team format. So you're now months into the investigation. You're getting search warrant applications. You're doing buy and busts and you're doing buys that you're collecting. What happens next? What's the next development in this case? Yeah. So at this point, this team consists of multiple agencies multiple people, multiple locations. We have a war room in the Eastern District of New York that has reams and boxes of, of data and, and records. And we're, we're looking at a structure of an organization that we could not believe how it came together. And that's supported by financial records. We had their straw man. We had the people that were posing as legitimate people to buy their businesses and to run their businesses, even though we know the money for those businesses came from the gang and the organization. We knew that they were making about $800,000 a week in cash. And they would have, they had a money room, literally where they had leaf bags full of cash because you can't, they, you know, you can't just launder that. You know, laundering is, is very difficult. And so they had money counters, the, 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 the electronic money counters that they were using for, to count the money. And so at this point, we're, we're getting the sense that we can really put an organization together. And then we start looking at the end. We start seeing the end and we're working with the prosecutors who, so we started, you know, appearing before a grand jury and we start putting evidence before a grand jury. A grand jury is, you know, uh, obviously it's a secret proceeding. The people come in maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. There are no defense attorneys, you know, the, the, it's a secret process. And you do that in advance of getting arrest warrants uh, for the people that the, hopefully the grand jury hears all your evidence over a number of months 
and then issues a true bill. We call it a true bill, which is known as an indictment. And that names all the people that should be arrested in this case. If they're indicted, you have an arrest warrant for them, and then you go and arrest them. We, we kind of were in that phase of this case. This was about six months in. We have IRS CID. We have the passport office investigator. We have not only my task force partner, but we have Brooklyn South Homicide on, on with us because they want to clear a bunch of their homicides that they know this gang did. We have officials in Dallas, Texas, Albany, New York, and Los Angeles because they did murders in Los Angeles as well. And so we, at this point, have about 110 counts, criminal counts, to be put in before the grand jury. We have 30 of which are murders or RICO Predicate Act murders, what we call. And we're in that phase of, okay, how much more can we do or should we do? And are we comfortable with it when something happens? Okay. Before you tell us what happens, I think this is, you just said something that's so interesting. I think for our listeners to know, especially our listeners outside the United States who don't understand uh, how we work with respect to jurisdictions, you know, normally if you charge someone with what is in effect committing a murder, you have to prove that they committed the murder there where the court sits. So right in the jurisdiction where the court sits. But when you have a RICO prosecution, racketeer influence, corrupt organization prosecution, you can bring in every criminal act that the organization has done wherever they've done it. And so while you're sitting in New York, they could have committed crimes and be held accountable for those in New York, even if they were located in Texas or California or, frankly, overseas. Anywhere that group is acting in a criminal manner, it's and you can prove that that's part of the organization's function, then you can bring those into evidence. And that's what makes these prosecutions so significant and so powerful, because you have so much evidence that you have a criminal organization. It's not just you've got a few drug buys in the neighborhood and a couple of murders in the neighborhood. This is an organization in every definition of the word. And so I think it's really interesting that you all were able so early in your career to be involved in a case this complicated, Bobby. I mean, as a young agent, what are you thinking to yourself as you're engaging in in the kind of case that some agents never see in their whole career that's spanning the country and even, you know, around the world. Well, I loved it because it's exactly why I came into the FBI. You know, I, like like the two of you, I went to law school. So I was used to complex structures and complex cases and issues and things. And my training in the traditional organized crime and working the mafia the first two years, when I got into my first office, they already had the Lucchese family structure was already on the board, had been there for years. And so I was used to this type of case, the RICO type of case. And I realized early on the, the power of it. And like you said, where a crime is committed and where it's prosecuted, usually that's, we call that venue. And usually venues established where the crime is committed. But the power of the RICO statute says, if you establish the gang is in Brooklyn, wherever the gang is operating, you can actually have venue back in Brooklyn where the gang is operating. So they ordered the, the hits and, and stuff. So what it did was, and RICO and the, the, the legislators who fashioned Rico knew that because they knew that gangs had traditionally knew if they could cross state lines or if they could cross certain jurisdictional lines, they could make it harder for law enforcement to enforce the laws and to catch up with them. Well, Rico kind of kind of does away with that. It kind of solves that issue of no longer can you cross a state line and 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 make it more difficult for us, particularly if you're, if you're a federal agent investigating things. And so we're in that phase where and, and people don't understand like investigation shows just end. An investigation, because an investigation, the decision to take it down is made between the agents and the prosecutors, and it's it's a very sometimes arbitrary. You know, you, you try to pick your your time and when you can do it. We didn't have that luxury because 
one day, I believe it was probably in mid-1990, in the early fall of 1990, I get a call from my informant who's out in the street. And at this point, the gang had been trying to kill him and his two brothers because, and his fourth brother was already in state jail on a murder charge because they were, this was the gang war that was happening. Now he, his story to us was they found out that he was a concerned citizen, maybe ratting them out. So they were coming after him. We let him play that game. We let him think that we believed him. However, when I got this call, he was very excited. He was very nervous and upset. And I said, Danny, what's the problem? And he said, there was just a shooting on the block. They're trying to set me up. They're telling the local police that it was a red Toyota. I knew he had driven a red Toyota. They shot out the car. They tried to shoot up the gang's restaurant. They hit a, a young girl going to school, a little kid and a 65-year-old man. I don't think any of them died yet, but they're going to try to pin it on me. And I said, okay, meet me at our normal place and we'll straighten this out. I hang up the phone. I turn to my detective, to Tommy Bruno, and I said, Danny just said there was a shooting on the block. He goes, let me call the precinct. He calls the precinct. Sure enough, he talks to the detective who said, yeah, my guys are out in the street right now. They've identified our guy as the driver of the car and the shooter. And Bobby, at that point, you have to actually be worried about two things or two ways, right? That he actually is the target and they're going after him in the gang. Or two, that he actually committed this crime and is trying to get you to get him out of it. Yeah, or both. How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. or both. Yeah, so we're going now. Me and my partner go to go to, to meet him, knowing probably that he just shot people, shot three people. He's claiming he was set up and they rented a car that looked like his for this. Again, we were convincing, I guess, because he bought the fact that we thought he was innocent. So we meet him at our local, our usual place. And we say, you know what? This is getting really hairy now. We need to protect you. We need, you're going to come with us now to the U.S. Attorney's Office. You're going to meet our prosecutors. He had met one of them already with the grand jury print, but you're going to meet our prosecutors and you're going and, and you're going to tell them the story. And he was like, yeah, 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 let's go. He would never see another day outside. We knew we were bringing him in. He did not know what was happening at that time. But we knew that he had done that shooting and they had eyewitnesses to that fact. And he had shot three innocent people in his attempt to shoot up the gang's restaurant. And so we brought him into the U.S. Attorney's Office late in the afternoon. And I remember we went all night with him. And it was one of those, you know, come to Jesus type meetings where over the course of a couple of hours, we had to move him from, we know you're just an innocent guy trying to clean up your neighborhood to, we know you're one of the masterminds behind this gang and that you were trying to take it over. That's a journey. You just can't make that journey quickly sometimes. And because at the end of that journey, he has to admit to what he did and knowing that that admission is going to land him in jail for a significant amount of time. That's the journey that we had to make that that afternoon and evening. Yeah. High smell and interrogation strategy. This sounds like behavioral profiling. <laughs> it does. Well, every every good interrogator is a behaviorist because obviously this is a two-way street when you're in the middle of it. I mean, you have to, one, project that initial image that you decide to project, and then you have to read their reactions. And like you said, it's a journey where you bring them along with you. In other words, you can't force it. You can't legally force it. You can't coerce it. You can't do anything that's threatening to them or their physical being. But what you can do is explain to them and use whatever personality characteristics you've been able to pick up on them against themselves. 
And one of the things that you probably picked up in this guy's case is that he's very willing to do things that will be helpful to him. And that's what he wants to do. And he thought he had, you know, he's maybe thought he was a little smarter than he was. So tell us how that interrogation went. Well, like you said, you start off benefiting them. You start off, uh, the way I always envisioned it was, it's, it's a journey that he has to drive, but I paved the road for him. So I can, I can lay the pavement, but he has to drive because he, you, can't, you can't, like you said, you can't force it. You can't coerce it. That person has to dr- be the driver of that. But I can pave the road for him. I can clear the brush and I can lay the pavement for him and make it easier for him to make that journey or to drive that journey. And so that's what we did. So we started out as, yeah, tell us about the shooting. How could they set you up? Why would they set you up? And he, he you know, we got him to kind of sink himself in. And then, then we told him, because you know, we're in and out of the room and we're talking to the, the detectives are literally still in the street investigating the shooting um, and, and feeding us information back. And there are certain thresholds that you get over, you have to get over, and then you're in the next phase of it. And then another threshold, you're in the next phase of it. The, the hardest phase was when we got to the point where we had to let him know that we knew he was part of the gang. We knew he was a killer. That takes hours. If, you know, that just, that in itself, that one guy post to get over takes a while. And there's, there's teeth gnashing and there's crying and there's yelling and there's anger and there's contempt and, and there's reconciliation. There is this emotional thing that happens and there's betrayal and there's mistrust and then there's a building of trust again. All of this is happening in this small room over a number of hours, and it's exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. When you know, I remember at the end of the night, at two or three in the morning, when we finally lodged him at the MCC in Lower Manhattan and drove home. Boy, you're you're worn out. Yeah. Um, uh, emo- just mentally worn out because you've taken this journey where you know you know you're getting accused of betraying and you're getting and then you you build rebuild that trust. We did it over that six or seven or eight hours, my partner and I and the two assistant United States attorneys, we were in and out and, and stuff. And we we did, we broke him down. And then we broke him down to the point where you have to go at some point, we have to say, look, if this case ends now, we have you, we know you, what you've done. You put yourself into enough of this stuff that we can get, we have enough of the other stuff that if you if you don't make this journey with us, if you want to end the journey here at this point, then you're going to be the one going to jail and you're, these people that you absolutely hate and are trying to kill are going to continue out there. Or you can become part of this team and you know he, he now knows there's a team. You can become part of our team. The only difference with your life now before being on our team and now fully being on our team is you're going to live in a different place. We're going to provide you with a place to live. And that's going to be a prison cell, unfortunately. But, but everything else, you're going to be safe. You're going to have food. You're going to have clothing. You're going to be taken care of. You're not going to be looking over your shoulder. And so what do you want to do? Because we can walk away right now. And we were confident that even if he stopped cooperating, we were going to be able to go and still go after the gang. It would have been a little more difficult. So that's that's the decision. you know. And you have to definitely make that at a point in the process that you think he's going to come with you. You can't do it too soon. If you pull that too soon, he's going to shut down. You have to know where he's at so that you're at that tipping point, you can push him over. And, and then even then there's this, you can see the, the realization wash over them. And now he's going to be, he's turning from his old life to his new life. 
Right. And, and that's why it's so stressful, Bobby. I know I've been in that situation a bunch of times and, and there's so much riding on that decision. And, you know, especially when you're working with a team of people that you know, you've never actually performed this play together before, right? This is all very live and interactive. And when you said before you break them down, you're not talking about physically, you're talking about you're breaking down the defenses that he's put up, that he's like, promoted to you as this concerned citizen. You have to wear that away and get rid of all that and and get back down to the truth. Truth is what this case is going to be based on. And he has to realize that he's been basically had and, and that his attempt to pull a fast one by using the FBI actually blew up in his face. And, and it gave the FBI an entree into his world and now his world is basically going to change. Remember, he was a former Jamaican police officer, which could work against us because he knows he knows those tactics and stuff. Sure. We, we actually were able to successfully use that in order to our advantage because now we made him feel like you're a cop again. You're on team cop. You're, you're with us. You're you're on law enforcement side again, and and he did, and and that's that. What that's one of the things we successfully used. And like you said, Jim, you, no matter how many times you do this, you never know if it's going to work this time with this particular person in front of you because everybody's different. You also never know if when you when you get ready to pull that trigger, if it's the right time until you pull it, and it either works or it doesn't. Um, right. and, and 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 so it, you know, we we did have a collective consensus among our team outside and inside about when to do this and how to do it. And sure enough. It worked. We we took our shot. It worked. We appealed to him. His his law enforcement passed and his family passed. And we said, we can protect your brothers. You know, tell your two brothers to come in. I, You know, we literally got one the next day. The third brother actually was one that we chased for weeks and told him to come in. I talked to him on the phone several times. He was so mad that his three brothers, one was in state two or in our custody now, were off the street. And he was a very violent guy. Fitzroy was his name. And I used to call, you know, Fitzy, I would say. And and Billy and Danny, his two brothers were working with, they trying to get Fitzy to come in. And they said, they're doing the right thing. They're treating us right. Please come in. Please come in. And he was always like, I got one more thing to do. I got one more thing to do. And I was chasing him. We could never find him. And sure enough, I got a call from one of our detective friends in Brooklyn one night. Hey, come out to this nightclub. And Fitzy was there ready to shoot the gang as they came out. They knew he was there. They snuck up on him and they blew his head off in his car. So I had to respond to that. So the fourth brother was killed by the gang before we ever were able to get him in. But we had the three brothers. They were all integral parts of the upper echelon of this of this group. We had a grand jury investigation. We had a ton of information. And we had now more witnesses that had come in that were more upstanding citizens. We had people who had passport, passport stuff. We had other people. We had the people who, bought, who sold them the building that they bought. And so we ultimately sat in the grand jury and we came out with an indictment that resulted in 54 people being indicted and 36 search warrants, all to be executed at one time on, on a single night. Wow. And I remember it was December 6th, 1990. It was one of those things, Jim, where me as a, as a fairly new agent, again, three years in the job, I walk into an auditorium at Floyd Bennett Field and there are probably 400 FBI agent, New York City detectives, INS agents, all of these different agencies represented. 
they're all this 400 salty, very experienced people, and me as a young FBI agent carrying this box from the U.S. Attorney's Office of, of arrest on search warrants and standing before this group on a stage and explaining this case to them. And my SAC is on the stage with me and my ASAC is there. And, and here I am going, yeah, we've got 56 arrest warrants in three different states, 36 search warrants, 30 here in Brooklyn, and a couple wow. in Springfield, Massachusetts, Albany, New York. We have the FBI New York SWAT team, which consists of two teams. We had the Newark FBI SWAT team. We had the Philadelphia SWAT team. And we had the New Haven SWAT team of the FBI all in town helping us with this takedown. And we had IRS CID in from Dallas, Texas. We had the NYPD Emergency Services Unit with helicopters helping us um, from the air. They were going to fast rope down onto the building, onto the roof of the building. Um, this was a coordinated tactical assault on this neighborhood that that this gang controlled. And uh, every, every eye was on me at, at the briefing. And it was wow. our, our PLA, which we used to call PLA in the Bureau then, it was our principal legal advisor, they're now called the Chief Division Counsel in the FBI. But our PLA was there also to brief everybody on the legalities, on what we were going to do, because this, this entire neighborhood was being seized. So everybody on the street, whether they were innocent or not, whether they were indicted or not, whether we had a search warrant or arrest warrant for them or not, they were being detained. The entire neighborhood had to be detained at one time. And wow. so it was a major operation. So you've got an indictment with dozens of people. You've got dozens of search warrants. You They're executed. Lots of people are arrested. They have initial appearances. Did anyone go to trial in this case? It sounds to me like you have tremendously strong evidence. Yeah. In fact, so we did this 36 search warrants. Out of the 54 arrest warrants, I think we arrested 42 the first night, which was a high number for us because in these things, these guys didn't have regular residences that we could find or anything like that. So ultimately, in the succeeding several months, we got a few more. I think there there still may be two or three outstanding fugitives in that case. But we got the, the overwhelming majority of them. We got certainly the upper echelon. The boss of the entire case, he did get away from us. He got back to Jamaica. We got him seven years later and extradited him two years after that. But the boss got away to Jamaica. But we got his brother. And ultimately, yeah, about eight months later, this was the summer of 91, we went to trial on six defendants, seven defendants on the RICO. And now, as you can imagine, a bunch of those 42 people that got arrested were cooperating with us as well. So now we have many more people to corroborate what our initial three brothers were telling us. Not only that, we had tremendous success with the search warrants. We had a massive amount of guns, drugs, and money that was seen. Not only that, but when we went into their their social club, their clubhouse, we found, you know, those black and white composition notebooks that we all used in school. We found milk crates of those. And what they would do is every week they would have meetings. The, the gang would have meetings in the social club. Now, remember, they were all born and raised in Jamaica, which was a British protectorate. So they are used to the British form of government. We, they had what, what if ever, anybody's familiar with it, it's called Robert's Rules of Parliamentary Procedure which is the rules that govern how par a parliamentary system works. They followed those rules. Literally, these notebooks had a call to order for the meeting. It had a roll call where they took everybody's name, whether they were on time or not. If you were not on time, you were responsible for coming the next week and setting up the meeting room in advance because of your lateness or your tardiness. So they took a roll. They said who was late, who was on time. And then they would discuss old business, the things that were outstanding from last week, and they would discuss new business, what was taking place. Now, I remember one of them saying like, and they would try to be cute about it. So they, they would always use shirts for kilos or whatever, but they would use like, I remember one 
excerpt from one of the books said, we discussed ways to not draw attention to ourselves, drive in a car with a woman, let the woman drive, don't speed, that kind of stuff. And it was all written out. And I remember at trial, we, we had these, we blew up these pages from some of these notes that were the most classic of these, you know, that were so clearly criminal conduct that they were literally recording. There was a recording secretary designated to take notes of the meetings. Um, that what a prosecutor's dream this yeah. is, Bobby. I mean, these pages were now blown up to like six by eight feet and they were huge. And we would bring them into the courtroom and show the organizational structure of the gang. I mean, it was it was a boon. And we found that that night when we raided the social club. So we had a lot of information and evidence before that we put before the grand jury. But now after all those search warrants, we had a tremendous amount. But the, the leadership that went to trial, the, the, the six or seven guys that went to trial, they were all facing life without possibility of parole. They were all on what we call continuing criminal enterprise, CCE charges, the RICO charges, of which many were predicate murders, the predicate acts of a RICO. So for a RICO, you have to have what we call predicate acts. And so you have two or more predicate acts to establish your role in the RICO. Those acts can be RICO predicates and also charged substantively if you want. And so many of the murders we charge substantively as a murder in aid of racketeering, which means if you carry out a murder to maintain or to increase your standing in the group, that's a murder in aid of racketeering. And that's a RICO predicate. And so we did a lot of those acts substantively. We had 924C violations, which were you know, uh, illegal immigrant in, in possession of a firearm. Um, and so we had a lot of different charges. I mean, there were over over 110 counts in, in the in the indictment. And so we had process, we had medical examiners from L.A. on those murders flying in. We had I don't know our witness list had to be 130 people, 140 people, and not now not every witness testified, but that was on our witness list initially. So yeah, we had a large RICO trial that went a couple of months. And uh, we had tremendous amounts of, of evidence going in and, 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 and cooperating witnesses. And it was before Judge Rena Raggi, who was a former uh, U.S. attorney, uh, assistant United States attorney there. Judge Raggi was a tremendous. She was amazingly sharp. She was a young judge. She was aggressive. She knew what was going on. Yeah, it was, it, again, a, a tremendous learning experience. They went to trial because they wanted to roll the dice, because we didn't really offer them a great deal, because we didn't have to because we had evidence and we had witnesses to put in the witness box and we had so much stuff against them that we offered them a deal, but it wasn't a great deal. And then, and then those particular people um, decided to roll the dice and take us to trial. And I mean, I cannot, I can't imagine that you lose at this point, but I am more aware than most people that there's no such thing as uh, a slam dunk case. So what happened? Well, I mean, and you're, you're right, because not, you know, a trial is, is, is like a, a, it's almost like a sporting event. Anything can happen right in the middle of a game. And so I'll give you an example of that. So we went to, I went to Dallas, Texas at some point during the case. And because we had a homicide there and I hooked up with a Dallas PD homicide detective and he had, a, there was a witness to this homicide. It was in an alley. There was one female witness. She was gone. He couldn't find her. But we knew if we found her, she was able to identify because she was dating one of the guys in the Dallas part of the gang. A month after I go to Dallas and meet with him, we find her. She's in a, a lockup in Las Vegas, Nevada. She got pinched for shoplifting or something. So she's not going to be in jail long. We race out to Las Vegas. He flies from Dallas. I fly from New York. And we meet and we find her in Vegas. We sign her up. He brings her back to Dallas and, and squares her away. She ultimately, this this she was a young girl, she was addicted to crack, and she was scared of this gang dating one of the guys. 
we bring her up to New York. He he's, he keeps her in Dallas. He ultimately brings her to New York when we're at the part of that trial on that particular homicide. So we have her in protective custody because she, we charged her with some crimes just to keep her safe. And so she's brought over that the morning of her testimony. The marshals have her downstairs. She comes in and she she testifies. We we had prepped her and the three defendants of the seven, three of them were the ones in this homicide. And she's going to point them out. And I had two AUSAs on the case, like I told you. One was a great litigator, which means he was good on his feet in the courtroom. He was a good looking guy. He was like an actor. One was great with the law. Jeff, who became magistrate, great. He was the law guy. He sat with the books. George was on his feet. Greek guy, good looking guy. He was very. And so George is saying, do you see the men? And like we always see, do you see the men? In, in the courtroom today who were in that alley that night and shot the guy. And she looks around and she, she, you can see her start to physically get nervous. She's shaking and she's holding her finger out the point and it's shaking. And she points to somebody in the back of the courtroom in the gallery, somebody, a member of the public. And, and he's like, what? And he, I give him all the credit because he's thinking on his feet. Really? That guy did it? You sure it wasn't that guy? You sure it wasn't that guy? And now he's like, and then the, the defense leaps to their feet and objects and, and the jury gets taken out and they go in chambers. And it, it, what happened, we found out very quickly, when the marshals brought her over from the holding place at MCC, downstairs, when they hold the people to come up the trial, there's these, these cells that are adjacent to each other and the bars are just, just bars. They're not even separated by a wall. They put her in the cell right next to our defendants. So the defendants saw her. The, the three, the, the old seven, so but the three that knew her from Dallas saw her. Oh my God! So now they threaten her downstairs ten minutes before she's going to be brought up, and so like little things like that happen in a trial. So nothing is ever a slam dunk. Were you able to resolve that? The judge allowed us to give her a break. She came back actually two days later, testified. She testified clearly. We got all of our convictions, almost every count. There were a few counts that fell out, but almost every count was convicted. All seven got. Five of them got life with no parole. The other two got 20 plus years on the RICO. And we, we were successfully, uh, we had a successful prosecution. Seven years later, I caught the ringleader in Jamaica. It took me two years to extradite him. He came back and he signed. He pleaded guilty because he knew we would convict him at trial. He pleaded guilty to 35 years, a minimum mandatory 35 years. Wow, that's awesome. Great work, Bobby. What a, And what a great case. But I don't think I have to ask you this, but I'm going to have to ask you, was this a best case or a worst case for you? This was the, the best of all cases I could possibly think of, not only because the case itself, but like I said earlier, it was such an education. It's made me such a better agent and investigator having gone through this entire thing. It was amazingly beneficial to my career to have it so early in my career. That's awesome. So thank you for listening to our listeners. Until next time, signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. 
When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.